it's it's interesting that when uh, virtual currency began to be discussed, you know, those of us in the gaming world already had sort of uh, stumbled into it and uh, uh, with little microcosms of, of virtual assets in our in our virtual worlds. And so when things like Bitcoin and, and other digital currencies started being proposed and utilized in the real world, I think those of us from the gaming world had a level of comfort and understanding about you know, how it might work and what the pitfalls might be, but most importantly, how it was inevitable. <laughs> the following program is for informational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is a new science, so do your homework before putting money on the line. Today is February 22nd, 2014. Welcome to episode 86 of Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. As humans, we like games. We like to make games, we like to play games, we like to share our gaming experiences with friends. Games are borderless. A company in Poland can make a game for a Chinese-based platform targeting would-be players all over the world. The trouble, of course, is that money as we know it isn't borderless, and the idea of seeking full integration with even half the world's regional currencies is an immense undertaking beyond the resources of all but the largest distributors. My name is Adam B. Levine. I'm the editor-in-chief at the LTB Network. Sir Richard Garriott is a giant in the history of gaming, and one of the first private astronauts to hit space. He published his first computer game in 1980, transmuted graphical multi-user dimensions into massively multiplayer online role-playing games in 1997, his works include the Ultima series, the Lineage series, City of Heroes, City of Villains, Tabula Rosa, and the upcoming successfully kickstarted Shroud of the Avatar series. I think it's going to be a series, right? Richard, thank you for yes, joining indeed, us on yeah. Let's Talk Bitcoin today. Absolutely. No, my, my pleasure. I'm uh, obviously uh, very excited to be with you here today uh, as a... A Bitcoin enthusiast myself. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, you know, not just pleased. I'm, I'm honestly excited to be talking about Bitcoins. Well, so before we get into the Bitcoin side of it, I want to go back and talk a little bit about your experience with the gaming industry because you have a really long history here. There are a lot of things that you could kind of choose to do with your life. What was it in particular about, you know, computer games that eventually became video games that made this an area that you chose to focus on? Well, for, for me, as with so many still who get into the games industry, it, it often happens at a young age. I just happen to be amongst the people who were in that very first generation who had that possibility. And so there are very few, if any, people, especially still making games, who predate me in the games industry. So I, I wouldn't say that it was a plan. I sort of, sort of stumbled into it. But uh, it is interesting that, um, you know, in those earliest days, there were so few people making games that those few of us who dug in and figured out how to make a game on these primitive early computers did pretty well. But then it became much harder over time as games became more sophisticated, as more people came in to compete, as the machines became more sophisticated, it turned from uh, literally child's play into obviously uh, you know, one of the biggest, most competitive industries in, in the world right now. And I've been very fortunate that, uh, as you noted, I've had a, a, a long uh, career. I've had a number of uh, strong hits and uh, can claim credit for a few uh, things like the invention of the term avatar that everybody uses now as a standard for, uh, for their character in a game. Uh, and the invention of a class of games, the massively multiplayer online gaming genre. I'm often kind of uh, credited with uh, bringing that to the forefront. You know, I hope I can still uh, produce games and, and, and carry that on to the future. 
in Bitcoin, we're in early days now. In the beginning, when you got into gaming, there wasn't much competition and all the fruit was low hanging fruit. So you just kind of started and it just kind of happened. No, that's exactly right. And in fact, now that you mentioned it, I do think there are some parallels on that same front, too. I was a relative uh, in the short tenure of Bitcoin. You know, I was, uh, you know, only came in halfway through the total history now that we have. But even I hear fondly of the tales of the first pizza transaction and other things in these very earliest days as, as uh, people were trying to kind of figure it out. What I find fascinating personally is is how much that figuring it out has gone and continues to go very parallel to what we uncovered in massively multiplayer games. When we launched Ultima Online, we were all shocked and amazed and pleased, but a bit mystified at the same time when the first digital objects started going up for sale on eBay. And we had to sit back and look at that and go like, wow, here's a magic sword that somebody could play the game for 10 hours and get for free that they're willing to pay $100 to buy from somebody else who has played 10 hours and gotten it for free. And then you had to sit down and thought about it and went, wait a minute, well, of course, it's actually worth $100 because it took somebody 10 hours to go, to go earn it. And, you know, 10 hours of your time at $10 an hour is worth about 100 bucks. So that's actually not an unfair price. And we began to immediately kind of shift our thinking away from the concept of something being virtual to the concept of its of its rarity value and how difficult it was uh, to to go and acquire in the first place. And as you may know about the history of, of not just Ultima, but all online games now, this same thing has manifested to a much greater extent. You know, we at peak, you know, we had lots of land, plots of land in Ultima Online that sold for as much as $10,000 a plot, largely because those particular pieces of real estate, like real estate in the real world, location, location, location really matters. And a plot of land next to a city center where you could run a business that could sell those swords at $100 a piece was actually profitable even when you paid $10,000 for this piece of virtual property. And so we sort of worked out you know, uh, because we had to. I mean, there was there was no way to resist the truth of the fact that even virtual items that are limited edition in the sense of digitally serialized or in some way you know known to be unique, that someone has has to take effort and or time and or expense to acquire, as in mining in the case of bitcoins. And as demand rises to have access to those objects which are rare, like the real estate land in, in Ultima Online, of course, the value of that still virtual but limited item rises. And, and so we, you know, not only did we kind of work through these things, I think it was truly inevitable. I mean, there's literally no way to resist it. It is a fact that these things, uh, though virtual, have absolutely quantifiable real world value. So the majority of your work has been in these MMOs at, at a high level for listeners, for the few listeners who probably aren't familiar with them. These games basically function as self-contained ecosystems where players interact with the environment, but also with each other and other people's avatars, uh, gaining more power and experience. And as they go through, the game essentially becomes more difficult and scales up. So that in a lot of ways, is very similar to the money systems that we have in real life, except that you have a lot more control over it as a game company. So in, in what ways, in your experience, was it different? 
What parallels do you think there were uh, between the oh. types of systems you were creating and the types of systems the national governments were operating? Oh, fascinating question. And yes, I actually think that even for a national government, there's a great deal of learning that can come by uh, observing and perhaps meddling in uh, virtual worlds. Uh, and here's, a, here's some good case studies for that. You know, when it comes to monetary policy, you know, if you're going to change monetary policy in the real world, well, first of all, you're affecting people's real lives in a way which they may or may not like. But also, if you're going to you know, literally increase the number of bills on the street by a factor of two, you know, you'd have to go print an awful lot of money and dump it somewhere to get it into the system. Um, then it would have, of course, these you know, ripples that would, you know, could be pr- profound and permanent. Well, in a virtual world, you can do those same things much more quickly. And, uh, you know, if you want to double the amount of currency in the world, you just push a button and there's twice as much currency in the world. If you want to change the taxation rate up by 30 percent, you know, there's no Congress you have to get votes on. We just do it. And as the world responds to that, which it does very as the virtual world responds to that, which it does much more quickly than in the real world. If it's going awry in some you know, crazy way that you think, oh, that, that monetary policy change we made is, is, is creating a catastrophe, we can change or revert it instantaneously. So as soon as it's going out of bounds for what we hoped, we can instantaneously react and put it back on track. And so as a laboratory, it, virtual environment is, is a great place to have worked out uh, you know, these details. And so, so we ran into all kinds of problems early on because, again, since we thought we were making a game, we didn't realize we were creating this deep intrusion into monetary policy. When we thought we were making a game, we just created currency willy-nilly in the sense of, you know, if you went into a dungeon and you fought some monsters and there was a chest at the end of the corridor, you know, we just spawned some gold pieces, some virtual gold pieces out of the chest, which means the more people who were in the world, the more of those chests were open, the more gold was generated into the world. And so suddenly we had you know, rampant inflation in these virtual worlds because we were not controlling the monetary policy. People were gaining you know, slowly but surely infinite wealth. And therefore, the value uh, or the price of uh, you know, a sword or a house uh, by necessity had to go up and had to go up you know, in, 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 in some level of pace with the, the rate of wealth gain of the, the average person in the world. And so we kind of stumbled into this monetary policy experiment accidentally, but then very quickly realized we needed the same kind of command and control that that nations need on monetary policy as well. And so, uh, you know, it took us a a few years to do that. And I think that games actually, by the way, still are imperfect by all means. But again, games are solving a slightly different problem than the real world in that in the case of a game, you are trying to make everyone have a, the, the feeling of winning. And there is an arc to their existence of we want everyone to start poor and we want everyone to end rich and powerful. Uh, and then we have to, and then when people finish, they, 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 they no longer exist when they, when they leave this world. Uh, you know, we, we uh, have a very different set of conditions than again, the real world. So, so since we're solving a somewhat different problem, the, the, the end games, uh, and the total policies, you know, aren't identical, but as an experiment to watch what happens when you change these variables and watch the and, and watch the results change quickly and be able to respond quickly, a virtual world is a is a great experiment bed. 
one of the things that's distinctly different between what you do with a virtual world in, in an MMO uh, and, say, you know, an, a regional currency is that you, you actually have uses of the currency in a virtual world where the currency actually goes away under most circumstances. We've heard these described before as uh, faucets. Faucets are, you know, like uh, when you kill a monster and they drop some loot, that's a faucet, right? And then on the other side of that, you've got sinks, and sinks are where, you know, it essentially collects the liquidity and then they get spent on things, right? That's exactly right. And, and so for us, the way we manage, you know, inflation and monetary policy is by adjusting up or down those faucets and sinks. That's exactly those are the exact terms that are the, probably the most common term for how we bring value in and out of a virtual world. Interestingly, for the game that I'm working on right now, Shroud of the Avatar, we're slowly turning off. They're not come gone, but we're sort of turning off to a large degree both the faucets and the sinks to have more of a fixed monetary policy, more fixed to uh, uh, level of currency available in the world. And one of the things we're doing to do that, or one of the side effects of doing that, is that we're relying on the players to basically make all things that exist in the world. So if I, whether I make a sword or I'm a person who mints a gold coin that from, you know, having pulled up gold air, mined gold ore in a, in a you know, cave, bring it back to town, forge it into a coin, or bring back some metal ore and forge it into a sword that object has the history of how it was made. So if a sword was made by Richard Garriott, it will always be a sword made by Richard Garriott. And if I lose or sell that sword into the world, instead of the world destroying that sword or gold in the, in the sink and the drain, we actually just store that off to the side. So it, you might call it, it goes down the drain, but instead of going into nothingness, it gets stored in the bank. Hmm. And then if you go deep in the dungeon and you need to find a sword because you've, you've finished an adventure, we go to the bank and we pull out the actual digital swords that were created by the actual people who created them originally, and we put them back in that chest in real time. And so we're actually, as opposed to having the faucets and drains, um, we're going to more of a steady state total currency pool. We by no means have any illusions that we'll be able to have it be literally closed, as I just described. We know that we'll need to bring more value into the loop. But by, by starting with a closed loop, we think that we uh, get one more level of kind of true understanding as to how the, uh, the policy is working uh, versus just trying to keep the water level about right. So with regards to real money trading, by the way, that's fascinating. Uh, the, the mechanism that you've described there where essentially you're letting all of the players ha uh, make uh, their own market-based decisions on literally every economic activity they do and giving them value for all of those things, that's fascinating. And I, I, has that been done before? Not to my knowledge. I, I think that um, virtual items uh, have fairly universally been exactly the way you originally described, uh, you know, faucets and drains. And so I think we're making the first run at, at some pushing nearly this far into a closed system.
CryptoKit is the world's first Chrome browser Bitcoin wallet. It's the easiest, fastest Bitcoin wallet payment system. With a simple one-click install, it takes just seconds to get your wallet set up. And because CryptoKit finds the address and payment for you, there's no more fussing around or tab switching. CryptoKit is more than just a wallet. It comes with a preloaded PGP-encrypted social network, news feeds from Reddit and Google, and up-to-date charts from exchanges. Finally, CryptoKit directory allows you to make two-click payments with any of the BitPay merchants. Once you install CryptoKit, you won't need anything else. For more information or to download CryptoKit, visit CryptoKit.com. Would you like to buy Bitcoin? Cash into Coins provides the fastest, easiest, and safest way to buy Bitcoin in the United States. Simply place an order online, deposit cash at any supported bank, and relax. Cash into Coins will verify your deposit and send out your Bitcoin within 24 hours. Join tens of thousands of people who have purchased from Cash into Coins. What are you waiting for? Buy your Bitcoin today. Go to cashintocoins.com. That's cashintocoins.com. Earlier, we talked about how even in your earliest experiences, you discovered that that sword, if it was valuable, was going to wind up on eBay. So are you disallowing that in this new version? And do you think that's possible? Or are you more? Tell me what you're doing. I'm assuming these will still be on eBay. In fact, we, we have a group that just joined the game recently called the Britannian Mining Company that for 15 years has already been mining value out of Ultima online. And they've just now set their sights on Shroud of the Avatar and said, hey, we'd like to come over here and start doing uh, similar things. And as we had lots of discussions internally as to what we thought about that. But and in the long run, we're going like, well, you know, the objects have real value. A virtual object that took time and efforts for somebody to acquire, even in a, in a game, has by definition value. And so there's really no way we can stop people from trading those for value, however, they wherever they want. And so, uh, you know, as long as we allow in the game where somebody can walk up to somebody else and hand them their sword. Well, that means that they could have made a side deal in conversation or, or eBay or wherever else to have traded some cash or bitcoins uh, before handing that sword back and forth. So it's, it is absolutely inevitable and we do and will support it. The thing that can't happen in our case, you know, unlike a bitcoin, which can travel from country to country, the sword in our case can never leave Shroud of the Avatar. And so that's the real difference. That's the lock that part of the economy, one half of the transaction, always must be inside of our world. So our gold coins and or our virtual swords can't really be used for, uh, very effectively anyway for trade in the real world. But the reverse is not only possible, it is going to be very common, we hope and think, uh, that people will use currencies from the real world in order to... Uh, to value the exchanges of these virtual goods. Isn't there a danger in that? You've identified this correctly, but the thing that hops out at me on this is that if you if you restrict the supply within your uh, ecosystem, within your economy of all of these different things, but the one thing that isn't constrained by you is the amount of outside value coming in, then doesn't that mean that if the game becomes wildly popular that the prices of everything within the economy should go up? Oh, wait, but it's, uh, it's a self-balancing no. system, right? Well, yeah, well, don't forget, though, that the, uh, the trade that happened from player to player is not value that ends up coming into the game. Because uh, from the inside the game, all that happened was the sword went from player A to player B. So there was no delta in the value 
inside the game. The place where currency gets dumped into our game, you know, so if you think about uh, you know, contrasting bitcoins to our virtual world, if you take a limited, a truly, you know, take the maximum number of bitcoins the world exists, and then if, if everyone had one bitcoin each and suddenly twice as many people wanted one, the only way that would work is if we each now had half a bitcoin each. And presumably those half a bitcoins would be worth what the old bitcoins are, what used to be worth. In our world, day one, we might only have 100 people in the game. But then we're going to go to 1,000. Then we might go to a million. And so more like the early days of Bitcoin, where the rate of, that, that rate of change is so high, we don't want to see a rapid uh, inflation of the price. And so what we'll do in those early days is when new players join, we'll actually bring in new gold. And so that's why I actually said it's not a fully closed loop because at least during a ramp-up period, we'll be bringing gold value directly into the game to get it kind of off and running. But after, after it's up to a relatively steady-state population, hopefully we won't need to have much more of that money policy. And again, the way I kind of relate that back to Bitcoins, as I look at Bitcoins, I think one of the brilliant parts of Bitcoins is that, you know, Early, early coins are easy to, to, to mine and late coins are harder to mine. And so no one will bother mining the later coins unless the price of the coin is high enough to bother needing to mine it. And so it has sort of a, a, a very elegantly self-balancing system that is what we're going to do manually. And again, it's because we're managing a different problem. We're managing a game, not a, not a, not a true currency. And so uh, th- there are times when, when uh, you know, we might purposefully create inflation or deflation because I think it makes the game more fun. Uh, but you obviously don't want anybody doing that if you're talking about a real currency. With regards to the games both that you've made in the past and that you are making now and that you think you'll make in the future, how do you feel about game companies sponsored real money trading? This has been kind of a contentious issue. And if you look at places like China, they actually don't allow it. Uh, there, the company is not allowed to make a market in their own goods, essentially. It has to be done by third parties. And that actually has created kind of a, a competitive market. But in the United States, that isn't really the case. Yeah, it's a very complicated problem. And different companies are, are so far kind of falling in different uh, sides of this issue. But let me see if I can at least frame our, our early opinion, almost as an industry, really, but how that is changing. You know, early on, before we realized we were creating virtual items with real value, what we thought we were selling to people was entertainment. We still fundamentally think we're selling people entertainment. You know, you pay $50 or whatever the price of the game is, and now you can log on and we hope you have fun while you're in the game. And that's all we were selling was entertainment. And then when people would start trading things back and forth between them, uh, you know, we'd be fascinated by it. But then, of course, the amount of money that began to be traded through places like eBay often is substantially greater than the amount of money traded directly with the company for that entertainment. And so the motivation is, well, gee, we should get a piece of that action. You know, we, we would like to uh, partake in that. The problem is that when you switch from selling entertainment, access to an entertainment service, to selling the sword, the virtual sword, you become a party to the safety and ownership of the sword. And in a virtual world, sort of like the real world, there are things like theft. And there's also uh, uh, you know, glitches in the bugs in the, in the product. And so if I had sold you a sword for, a, you know, you play the game for $50, but I sold you a sword for, let's say, $1,000. And we, the company, were party 
to selling you that sword for $1,000. And once you had it, someone else in the game either stole it or you were using the sword and it broke or there was a glitch in the game and you lost your sword. Well, your beef is now going to be with us, not with whoever sold you the sword. And we didn't build these games to be in the banking business. We didn't build them to have the security of transactions to make sure that the even the history of the sword's ownership was kept so perfectly that we could always make sure we got the correct sword back to the correct owner. And because it's a game, we actually sort of want people to be able to fight over the swords and steal the swords from each other and break them now and then more than they would in the real world because it's a game. And we think that that adds fun into the game. And so a lot of companies, most companies in fact, have opted not to be the market maker in their own gold or in their own virtual items. Mostly to avoid either needing to create the banking level of tracking of all those things, as well as though to to not be the target of the uh, you know potential lawsuits that might come up as people would argue about uh, ownership or response of, of maintaining that virtual object. Now, the reason why that's changing slowly is because these games are just getting better at it in the sense of we're, we're gaining confidence over time in our ability to uh, manage those mistakes, manage when uh, you know an object is lost. We think we have data trails now to to get the truth out. Did you give your sword away, or or did you really sell it to somebody and now trying to claim it back because uh, you're unhappy with the transaction? Uh, we think we have good enough data records to begin to have confidence. We can at least uh, you know not muck it up from our side. <clears throat> but there's still the side that says you know we're making a game. And we want there to be able to be theft in the world at some deep level. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and so if we, if we are a party to selling a $1,000 rare item other than someone else in the game steals from you, you know, that's still one of the, the more challenging uh, uh, hurdles to get past before we would really fully adopt it. So you said that you're making a game, and I agree with that. You are making a game, but... These games that we're talking about, it's not like you're making the next iteration of Call of Duty. It's not like these are round-based. It's not like this is something that doesn't matter. These are actually things where people put in 10 hours continuously, not because they want to play a bunch of matches in a row, but because they're trying to accomplish something, and that does have value. So on the one hand, that kind of sets up sets the stage for players who don't necessarily, who have more time than money, to want to spend money on this. But you do have that other side of the equation, too, where for a lot of people, this is a low-level skill that they can kind of do, and in a you know way that adds value to other people uh, to other people's experience earn an income from that so what do you think of the idea of or the practice frankly of people actually doing games professionally playing games professionally and farming for other people do you think that that's a good thing or a bad thing generally speaking um, so in the in, in the overall picture i think it's a good thing so i think you framed it exactly uh, correctly uh, and let me give you another little anecdote uh, on the side of how this can go badly and how it can go well. You know, the, the, the bad side is the what are, what are often referred to in games these days as gold farmers. Uh, these are, are often sweatshop-like businesses that pop up in China. They either employ people at a very low wage or even create scripts and bots that uh, perform repetitive action in the games in order to maximize uh, gaining gold. And as those bots have become more sophisticated, they even will kill or block other real players from being able to have access to the places in the game 
uh, that are, are the most valuable. That's the bad side because it not only directly blocks other players from going into some of the most fun and most fruitful places to be, but it also means that these are people extracting value from the game, selling those things back to our players uh, and uh, inflating our economy without us uh, in order to suck some money out for themselves. And so while it's understandable why that happened, it's not good for our company. It's not good for our player base. It's not more fun for any people involved, et cetera. That's the bad side that we try to resist. The good side is, a little, is more complicated because it's, it's more like the real world. Uh, and as you said, people who, you know, the time versus money paradigm and how you wish to choose your time and money is exactly it. Uh, the, 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 the best examples I give is that in Ultima Online, we had uh, people who would, who would band together to put on a play. We'd actually put some theaters in the game but we didn't really put any mechanics around the theaters. We just put them in there in case groups wanted to get together and perform a wedding amongst their friends or put on a play for their friends, et cetera. But the puppeteering wasn't very good and you couldn't really charge people at the door, um, uh, et cetera. But, but let's suppose in Shroud of the Avatar as a case study, we make a much nicer theater. And if the theater in this case can be rented by a, uh, a theater company or you know, a playwright, and they can now give access to backstage to all of their actors and charge people a fee to come in the front door and sit in the seats to watch a play. Well, if they can do that, if they can charge money for a play and earn money on it, well, now they're going to want to put on a good play because if they put on a really good play, people will come. And if they put on bad plays, people won't bother paying a dollar at the door to come in and, and see that play. And since you don't want to go see a bad play yourself, you're going to want to know if that play is any good before you pay your dollar. And that means it's probably worth it for you to go read a review of that play, which means a re- the, the job of a reviewer of virtual plays suddenly becomes also valuable. <laughs> and so what our goal is, is to create tools in the game to let people who are good at content creators to create content and get rewarded for that content in a way that does make, let them uh, make a living at it. Because one of the things that we found out early on in virtual worlds is we, the company, which, you know, we, we number tens of people, our tens of people cannot create content fast enough to even come close to staying in front of the rate of consumption of all the players in the world. And yet, if you don't give economic benefit to the people who do good work and therefore, you know, uh, non-economic benefit to the people who do bad work, as in bad plays in my example, then most of the content that most people will create will be bad content. And so you need to give direct real world reward to the people who go out of their way to spend time to add richness and depth into the virtual world, just like you do in the real world. And so that's why the monetary policy issues are exactly parallel they're exactly the same foundational issues so that's again fascinating uh the idea again of the reviewer job being suddenly relevant because there's something that needs to be reviewed that has an economic cost because you're right i was just thinking to myself while you're talking about the play that i'm not sure that i would go to a play that you know in in a game that that would be worth my time on on a you know blind faith but i might do it once or twice for novelty but you're totally right if there was a reviewer if this was actually a community and it was something that people participated in then that sort of changes the dynamic quite substantially well and in fact we're we're we're, even though the shroud of the avatar is still in progress we're seeing this happen you know right now in a way that we're trying to keep up with it's happening 
faster than we can keep up with it yet again. For example, we need music in Shroud of the Avatar. And of course, we're doing this game with uh, funds provided by the community. So it's on a much more modest budget than many of the games I've done in the past. And so anytime anybody can help us out in ways that are not monetary, we're happy to take that help too, because it saves us from having to spend the money we got from the others. And a lot of people, again, in our community have more time or more skill opportunities than money. And so a lot of people said, well, you know, I would love to have, you know, make my contribution to the game be, uh, you know, instead of money, give me some game credit if I can contribute some music. I was like, well, of course, we'd, we'd love that. So conceptually, it was an immediately good choice. But then what happened is that people, you know, all kinds of people who, who were making their own music, put stuff up, music up in a folder and send it to us in a variety of forms. And then for me, as the creative leader of the project, I sat back and said, well, wait a minute, 90% of this music being contributed is not exactly what I need for the game because it's, it's either modern or uh, it's fully orchestrated and I was looking for tavern music, uh, whatever it might be. And I was saying, uh-oh, now I have this way of, you know, and, and of course some of the music just wasn't as good. I mean, so you have the full pantheon. People are just contributing music that they think is interesting and special, but it's not curated in the way that I need it for the game. And so I'm going like, well, now I've just given myself a huge problem of, you know, compared to going out and hiring a composer that I know I like, which means most of the work I'll get back is what, what I'm hoping for. Now I've got lots of work coming in, but uh, a lot of people have done a lot of work, but now it's going to take me a lot of work to even go figure it out. And so the community then jumped up and again, said, well, you know, just tell us what you're really looking for and we'll build a little bard's circle and, and we'll self-curate. And so I said, great. And so I began, I gave them feedback as the first few dozen pieces that came across my door. Uh, they started communicating amongst each other. They do their own pre-sort. And we're now at a point where the community gets it completely and is, has completely self-organized in order to create very high quality results, far better than I would have ever predicted we could get to at this stage. You know, basically every piece they're now putting up is a piece that I'm you know, more than happy to drop uh, directly into the game. And all those people, they're really doing it out of heart and passion, but now we sort of feel a reverse obligation. We're going to be giving them virtual uh, advancement in the world because of their amazing contributions they've been making <laughs> in kind, so to speak. Sure. So, you know, it, this takes me right to where I want to go with this conversation. So you did just do a successful Kickstarter. It actually wasn't that recent. It was last year, right? It almost uh, yeah, it was beginning two months now to be a year. So, uh, yeah. and in fact, we not only did a successful one, we did a very successful one in the sense of uh, uh, it was one of the top five or ten of not only the year, but five or a dozen uh, or so of all time. And right. So, I saw uh, that you almost doubled your million dollar goal, uh, as you said, which is more modest than a, a modern game budget in a lot of senses, but still was, you know, a pretty decent amount to raise on Kickstarter at that point. Exactly. And in fact, the community continues to grow and grow. We've uh, tripled the number of people that are following us now. Uh, we're up to $3 million of, of backing at this stage. And in fact, uh, each month that has gone by, the, 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 uh, the flow of revenue from backers has increased month to month to month. So we really just couldn't be happier. One of the most interesting things for me about Bitcoin is that it's actually not the only cryptocurrency out there. It's one of the first cryptocurrencies out there, and it's the biggest right now, but it's not the only one. And one of the interesting things about it is that as an open source technology, it's something that anyone 
can, for any project can essentially create their own iteration of uh, based on the most current version of the software or one of the other three or four software suites, uh, one of the other three or four software technologies that are out there doing basically the same thing as Bitcoin now. One of the things that I've been doing with cryptocurrency for my particular project, and I, I think it's similar, so I, I would really like your opinion on this. Basically, with cryptocurrency, you are rewarding people through the initial distribution of the currency for whatever adds value to the network. So in the case of Bitcoin, Bitcoin is a purely transactional network. So mining, in that case, processing transactions and making sure that they're not, that they're not invalid is adding as much value to the Bitcoin network as possible in a way that can be rewarded. You also add value to it by using it, of course, and also add value to it by accepting it. But the primary thing that's rewarded is the mining. With what I'm creating... We have essentially a content network. We release uh, now uh, eight shows per week and uh, lots of uh, written content, too. But it's been a mostly volunteer affair on my side. And so I kind of have a very similar problem to what you've had with your uh, curation problem, right? You have all of this stuff and you need the community to self-organize in order to do that. But once you've done it, you need a way to feel like you can actually reward them because you're not going to pay them real money. You don't have the budget for that. But yet they've put in work that is valuable to you and you have nothing that you can give them in return. So what we're doing is we've actually created a custom cryptocurrency that will be launching at the beginning of next month that we're going to, instead of giving it out through mining, we're actually going to give it out to content creators. And then we're going to accept it back in for advertising on our website and in our network and a variety of other things. So essentially, you start off with something that has no value, and then the people that create the value in it are the people who receive the currency first in the same way that Bitcoin mining works. Does this make sense to you? Totally. Yeah, no, and, uh, and and I think that uh, as long as your ecosystem is sufficiently diverse, uh, to go back to the gaming term, with faucets and drains, then this should work just fine. I mean, if, if I was a, a candle maker, I, I might not have a sufficiently deep and uh, and breadth, uh, enough breadth within my ecosystem of clients and suppliers to, to make that work. So you have to have a sufficiently large pool uh, but the way you described it, I think, is, is just right. You have contributors who you want to give value to, and you want them to be able to cash out that value in this still within the same ecosystem of, of the universe you're creating. And as long as you have, as long as you've got this, the people contributing as volunteers are the people that you want to be able to support through advertising or other kinds of activities with your sites, then, it, then that makes a perfect match. One of the interesting things that I think is different here is that in doing this, you do have to give up quite a bit of control. You can have some things because you can set value by saying, I'll accept my token at this rate or, you know, rely on the market. But you don't have the same sort of control in games that you you wouldn't have the same sort of control as is desirable for you to have in games. What do you think of this idea as a way to fundraise in the future? Because this is, again, like this is this is really where I'm going with this. You just raised about two million dollars from twenty two thousand people and if instead of giving those people, and obviously at the time this didn't exist, but if instead of giving those people back, here's your you know $70 thing and you get a copy of the game and a signed thing, what if instead of that, you just gave them this currency that didn't wasn't valuable for anything, but that they could choose to sell on the market if they wanted to, or they could choose to hold knowing that later on when it's no longer available because your Kickstarter campaign ended, and at that point, everything immediately becomes more valuable that you've done since it's no longer available broadly. Doesn't that mean that uh, you see where I'm going with this? This yeah, is obviously no, no, too I leading to be exactly a question, it. but yeah, no, I, 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 get, I see the question in there. Yes, and had we had a better understanding of cryptocurrencies, we might have considered doing that from the get go. You know, we're we're sort of backing our way into that by giving out gold, which isn't a true cryptocurrency because it doesn't have 
a limit. It doesn't have a, a, a forced finite quantity. Um, but we and are it's not tradable, right? You, you can't trade this before the game is launched. You can't. Yes, at the moment you cannot trade gold before the game is launched. Although we now are finally trading pledges, so we we literally just turned on this last cycle the ability for people to trade uh, pledges. So we're we're sort of letting people trade these digital objects starting right now, huh. even though the game is not finished. So we we're sort of migrating in the direction you're describing. Uh, but there's something else you said too that I thought was very interesting about price setting. The thing to watch out for, uh, I would imagine, in your uh, case study that you've described for your own uh, use of a custom cryptocurrency, is that it, it, is it, since it's a closed ecosystem of exchange. I mean, even though people might take the currency, you know, to the other side of the world or universe and back and hold it well outside of your ecosystem, if the primary trading value, if the primary use of the currency, not trading, but use of the currency. Is in uh, is still around your uh, field of play or field of endeavor, then the thing to watch out for is price fixing, because when when you try to the, the nice thing about buying, for example, uh, advertising on Facebook or Twitter or many of these other uh, digital advertising areas these days is it's all done as an auction, and so the price self the price of that advertising self manages and you know, floats up and down based on demand. And so as long as you do that with yours, I think you're probably still in good shape. The problem is if you go, gee, you know, I really think I need $10,000 for a page of advertising. And so therefore I need to somehow, you know, force people to pay that. Or if you realize, well, gee, I really want to, my, my personal exchange rate of dollars to my own cryptocurrency, I need it to be some other higher number just to make it worth my time. Well, that might start to close off one of the places for people to spend your cryptocurrency because they think the price is wrong. They don't agree with you on the price. Uh, and so if you control, you could end up with a monopoly on too many of the pricing structures for their taste. So if you, if you make sure you either do it as an auction or make sure that there's enough other people and there's enough other pieces, enough individuals that are, can't be monopolized, that are in control of those pieces, then I think uh, it should you know, stay balanced just fine. This is Chris Joseph bringing you news on Next, the first true second-generation cryptocurrency for February 21st, 2014. The Next community has begun fundraising campaigns to aid charitable organizations. Until February 27th, donations of Next are being accepted in support of Songs of Love, an organization that creates original, personalized songs for children facing tough medical, physical, or emotional challenges. In just a few days since the campaign was announced, more than 40000 Next has been raised, and an anonymous donor has pledged to match all community donations to a maximum of 100000 Next. At current market rates, this will provide Songs of Love with $12,000. To donate, visit songsoflove.org next. For more information on Next, head to nextcrypto.org or mynxt.org. And stay tuned for more news on Next in the next Let's Talk Bitcoin broadcast. In spite of the fact that you know, my team was arguably some of the people to be exploring the value of digital objects prior to any cryptocurrencies, and so we should, and I think are, amongst the early adopters and believers 
we, we, we weren't, or at least I personally was not one of the first on board. Actually, some of my staff were amongst the very first on board, but I myself kind of saw it initially as a curiosity as, you know, potentially, uh, or at least hypothetically inevitable over the long haul, but I didn't choose to kind of jump in and either become a miner or even a holder or provide uh, places to spend the you know, Bitcoins in the first year. And, and mostly I just think because it's, it, it wasn't big enough to have kind of hit my radar. Then it was actually my wife who is in the finance field who began to uh, be researching it more and began to encourage me to, you know, take this more seriously and, you know, and, and kind of weigh in as to what uh, someone who should be able to give it a, a little a more intuitive understanding than she could uh, to have an opinion. And so my first opinion, as I began to look at it, I began to go, well, actually, this this canon really should and is working. So so we can then convert it to going like, OK, well, if this is all working, we need to find ways to participate. And there's really kind of two or three ways to participate. Of course, you could mine. Uh, of course, you could uh, hold some coins. And of course, you could, uh, you know, accept bitcoins in your in your business and, and things of this nature. Well, of course, for me as a business, even though I'm the founder of the company, I really need to sell the team on you know, the importance of, uh, of accepting Bitcoin as uh, one of the ways to, uh, uh, to take value into our game. And I'm sure we'll get there. We just, we're solving other problems right now of just getting the game online first, but uh, I'm confident, you know, we will ultimately uh, take Bitcoins within the game itself. Um, but then as I said, okay, I also would like to buy some. Then I immediately ran into the nightmarish problems of, of buying my first Bitcoins. And the reason why I call it nightmarish is that you, we, we were already to the era where anybody trading any of the exchanges were you know, concerned about uh, things like money laundering uh, worries. And so they you know, demanded you send in bank statements and bills and driver's licenses and maybe even videos of yourself to prove who you were. And so it, it took me a long time to actually just buy a Bitcoin. And I thought, okay, well, normal humans are never going to get through that process. You know, the man on the street, woman on the street are, are not getting through that. And then I said, okay, well, now I've got some Bitcoins. Let's go spend some. And if I wanted to go look at the maps of where I could spend my Bitcoins. And, you know, here in uh, where I'm talking to you from right now is our New York home. And, uh, you know, there's one bar that's about five or six blocks from here that takes Bitcoins. Um, and so I, I, I've had it on my agenda to go over there, but I've still never been. Uh, and, and I've spent a few bitcoins on some things on purpose, but none of them were yet essential. And a lot of my peers have done things like, uh, whether that's uh, Virgin Galactic or Tesla, you know, selling some seats or cars for some bitcoins. Those are great. And I, you know, I'm, I'm pleased that many of the companies I've either invested in or helped get started, uh, you know, are also now accepting bitcoins. But it strikes me there's kind of two things that, I mean, I'll call it three things that we just need to see happen in bitcoins that I think is going to really open the floodgates to not just those of us that are hackers and nerds, but uh, to, you know, the, the common man, so to speak, you know, and those are the three steps of one is, you know, we still have to make it much easier to, to understand and acquire what a Bitcoin is and, and get one in your quote pocket, proverbial pocket. Two is, you know, even though once I now have uh, things like coin jar or other places to hold a, a local Bitcoin in my phone or other things, now that those work, it's, it's easy, but sussing out which one to use and why and whether it's safe or not, and how to link it up, took more time than I think the, the again, casual users are capable of doing. And then finally, we really have to get not just those big name or, you know, the highly visible 
transactions of these, uh, the, the newsworthy transactions taking Bitcoins, but really, uh, you know, get it down to taxi cabs in New York and your street corner cafe. And, and to me, those are all technology issues. Those are all software issues. All of those are solvable right now, today, with just good software in front of it. And so that's why I'm kind of looking at Bitcoin myself going, we are, you know, a hair's breadth away from having a user experience that lets me acquire and hold and spend in a way that the masses can do. And once we have that, I think Bitcoin will, you know, it's already had a pretty meteoric last year, but I think we have an even bigger meteoric you know, year ahead once we get some of these uh, software problems uh, taken care of. So I have two things. One, I think that the software problem is an interesting one because in Bitcoin, the thing that we've had to this point is a difficult time bringing in talent that can actually execute on this stuff. And so most of the time what you get is the repurposing of technology that was already out there. You look at the earliest exchanges, Mt. Gox, and, you know, that stands for Magic the Gathering Online Exchange. And, you know, they've been having trouble in this last couple of weeks. And I kind of like to people ask me um, sometimes what the problem with Mt. Gox is. And as far as I can tell, it doesn't matter sometimes how good or how much money you spent on your blender. It's just not going to make a good airplane, and the crew probably wouldn't know how to fly it even if it did. So it seems like all of these are legacy issues caused by nobody believing this thing was going to work at first, and the players who had the resources in order to deliver on the type of experience that you're talking about here, had they were like, why would I want to, why would I want to bother with this? Now, the second point is uh, my first time I didn't buy Bitcoin was about three years ago this month. Uh, when I didn't send uh, several hundred dollars worth of cash in an envelope to a guy in Washington, D.C. named Bitcoin Morpheus. <laughs> he, yeah. he then went on to, he was, turns out, totally legit, but uh, that was the process at the point that I first got involved with Bitcoin. And so I totally agree with what you're saying. It's been a slow rise, uh, you know, as far as uh, as far as adoption on the ground has been concerned. But I think a lot of that has been because the critical mass that you need in order to make money work simply hasn't been present in any physical locations outside of a few places, you know, like maybe the Kreuzberg district of Germany, for example. But outside of that, the Internet really is the place. And so it's these first services that are coming online, you know, WordPress, that's all fine and stuff. But the stuff that's happened in the last six months and more importantly, the companies that will come on in the next six months, I think, are opening the door and saying all of you other companies that don't know what's going on or don't necessarily trust this thing. We have enough faith in it. We've looked into it. It's working for us. I don't know if you just saw, but Overstock just announced that they're actually going to be giving a one percent discount to all uh, orders paid in Bitcoin indefinitely starting in four weeks. So. I mean, like there are such advantages to this stacked up that it really feels like we're, it's it's very much a matter of time and normality, right? This has to become normal before the average person will use it much more than it has to become usable. Uh, yeah, totally agree. And uh, that, that normality is it. And, I, and, and while I agree that, you know, Overstock is a great, great uh, champion for this and is going to help a, a lot. Um, you know, I, I also think that uh, when you describe the word normal, it has to be normal in the sense of the frequency with which any any of us who are using it, it has to be something we can and do use daily. Right. Um, and that's why I'm going the taxi cab or the corner cafe or, uh, you know, get it onto our, even though Apple won't like it, you know, get it onto our iTunes store and Amazon and everybody else. We need to, you know, whatever it is, wherever you spend money daily, 
the goal should be to make sure that one of the places you contact every day, it takes Bitcoins. And at that point, I think that uh, the, the dominoes will start falling on their own. So let's talk about the future for a second. The problems that surround Bitcoin at this point are basically in two categories. They are user experience and they are permission based, uh, be it from a regulator or from a country or from, you know, even uh, the IRS is a good example of this. There is a lot of uncertainty. And because of that uncertainty, it's kind of difficult to know what you should do. So people just aren't doing anything a lot of the time. What, what, what do you think is a, a good scenario for Bitcoin moving forward based on as you see things now? Well, I, I like the way you outlined it of, of talking about the two aspects of user experience and regulatory concerns, permissions. Um, what I find interesting about those is I, the reason why I'm so bullish right now on Bitcoin is that I think both of those are, are inevitable to be solved. I don't, I don't think it is possible to see either one of them utterly fail. And the reason why, even on the regulatory side where you know, people might say, gee, if all the world's banks you know, and governments ban it, they could stop it. And I'm going, I think we're almost past that point. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's, 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 a, it's a hard thing to stop because it, 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 it really has, you know, it, it's like uh, why a lot of people put money into gold and diamonds. It's because the government can't stop you. And so, uh, so clearly, if governments resist it, it will make adoption slower. It might make it continue to remain more boutique in the long run. Uh, but I think at this point, governments have, since they don't think they can literally outright stop it, are saying it's best to figure out how we can participate in some way or regulate in some way as opposed to uh, resist. And I think they already have that. I think governments are doing just fine as long as, like with banks, anytime you take very large amounts of money in and out of the system, uh, you know, call it $10,000 in value or greater, as long as those giant transactions are made aware to governments, which I think they will, they will demand, then, you know, and then I think you save them most of their laundry laundering, uh, uh, money laundering concerns and that th- th- it'll go fine. It'll go slowly, but it'll go fine. And then on the adoption side, on the user experience side, you know, because I think this really, that really is just a software problem, then, you know, even with the early creators, their tools will get better and better over time. You know, think of, think of another crowdsourced, heavily used uh, thing right now, like the Linux operating system. You know, when Linux first came out, you know, many 20 years ago or longer, uh, you know, a lot of serious developers didn't really use it because it was not as well curated as the, quote, professional, you know, corporate operating systems and tools. But over time, those tools got better. And now once the community kind of picked it up and took it on, now the compute, those tools are incredibly superior. And, you know, there's almost no one in my industry who doesn't use Linux as their, uh, as their professional operating system. Some of us, you know, a lot of people still use Windows for the target because we make games for Windows. But, you know, what everybody uses on the backside is, you know, pretty much always Linux. And that's a completely crowd-created, you know, uh, uh, foundation. So, so I think that it's hard for me to actually describe a bad, bad scenario. Bad scenarios to me just are it will go more slowly than we might hope. Bad scenario to me means, yeah, no one's, um, you know, uh, the user experience is not going to get as good as fast as I think it could easily. And a bad scenario on the other side is, you know, governments, especially big governments like if the U.S. or Europe, you know, really make a hard stand against it. But I think those are, 
you know, unlikely. I, th- I think the tools are getting better already fast, uh, you know, as fast as I like, but, but plenty fast. And while, you know, China has done a bit of a push-pull on some of their rulings, I still think uh, in the long run, uh, the major governments of the world will come on board. This has been a really great interview. Thank you again for uh, for taking the time with us. I, I have one uh, last question, kind of taking it back even further from the kind of national government thing, just to the general organizational across the world level. I've been uh, really fascinated with some of the stuff that uh, Gabe Newell has recently been saying, uh, the CEO of Valve. Is he the CEO? I don't actually know if he's the CEO. Anyways, Gabe Newell oh, over yeah. at Valve has been saying some very interesting things recently about how Valve is actually the biggest bottleneck in the Valve system and that the amounts of content, as you said, being created by their player base is actually above and beyond what they can ever even hope to to uh, to compete with. And so to that end, uh, he's trying to take the company, uh, the Valve company and the Valve platform to a place where publishing becomes almost more of like a, a network protocol where there's a set of rules and a set of network publishing standards, but basically it's just a push process where if you as a game creator have something or even a software creator that you want to push through this platform, you can do it. And basically, so long as you follow the rules, Valve doesn't even need to worry about it. Fascinating. But here's, let me give you another thought mix in there. So I I agree that, uh, you know, we've even been looking at Steam for the the game working on that we're working on as we're debating on how to get it out to the widest possible audience. And, and so I, I understand very much what, what uh, Gabe was saying about Steam and about Valve and how to, how to further democratize it. And I'm a huge proponent of this democratization. Even the crowdfunding we're doing is a big part of this democratization and getting people involved uh, early and uh, letting things float to their natural uh, heights. That being said, you know, that fixes part of distribution. That fixes channel availability. But adoption of whether it's a game or a cryptocurrency requires more than just channel availability. Mm-hmm. Even if you have, like for example, right now, I don't even know all the cryptocurrencies out there, but I'm sure many of them make the case that they are technically better for a wide variety of reasons than Bitcoin. And the same thing is true in the game industry. Games compared to each other often claim my game is better than somebody else's for a wide variety of maybe real true reasons. But just channel availability is not what is required for success. And that's one of the things I've learned in the game industry down through these years is that just, just making sure that people can download your game does not mean that they will ever see it, does not mean they'll ever think of it, does not mean they'll ever choose to try to play it, hmm. even if your game is the best. And, and that's why just the publishing side is, is one piece, but the marketing side is just as important, if not more. And, you know, if you look at uh, almost any intellectual properties, Companies that make, whether it's Mickey Mouse or Star Wars, you know, you spend about as much in marketing as you do in the development of the product. And a lot of people look at that and go like, ah, oh, well, that wouldn't be true if we had these great democratized platforms of, of presenting stuff, to which I go, well, that solves half the problem, but you haven't solved the just as important half on the marketing side. And, I, and the way I take that back to Bitcoin is I go, you know, I have no idea whether Bitcoin is the best cryptocurrency. And there might be places like the one you were describing for your own internal needs where there are cryptocurrency technology or specifics that would be great for a a ecosystem that you are in control of locally. However, if you're talking about the global national cryptocurrency, Bitcoin's already going to be hard to beat. You know, I I, I periodically look over the fence at Litecoins and Feathercoins and some of these others just to make sure I'm not missing something important. 
Uh, and, and, you know, and I, and I could be wrong. Maybe, maybe the, one of those will be the ultimate international standard. However, from a marketing standpoint, Bitcoin already has a huge advantage uh, just because of all the press that it gets. If you look at the general public, of which you know, I don't know what percentage of the general public has heard of Bitcoin, but it's a lot more than it was a year ago. If you ask that same group of people, have they heard of any of these other cryptocurrencies? And the ratio goes down fast. And so even if a lot of these other currencies are superior, which they very well may be, I think the marketing lead that Bitcoin has is still high. And so just having, going back to uh, Steam, just having a democratized platform where it's pushed to publish, that is, that's just the start of the battle. The, the bigger battle lies ahead, even if you have the best game, to make sure people know about it. And, uh, and that's more than just publishing. I, I totally agree with you. I think that uh, that you're completely right there, and I guess I should have uh, shared the rest of his plan with you because I think that it, it does address this. You're right. The, the other thing that needs to happen is you need curation because if you just have that incredible amount of content, then you have all the same problems you were talking about with your uh, – you know that you were talking about with the music problem you were having uh, with the current game. But the solution, we already talked about that too. It's the dramatic play reviewer who in your game publishes and sells his reviews or there's a local newspaper or what have you. That's what it is, is that every venue is that by creating this problem and allowing people to profit from delivering the solution, you create the solution also. or You at least create the situation that brings it into existence. So what Valve is doing with, uh, again, once they roll out these changes, I don't know if they've announced a date for him yet, but he gave this talk last year. Um, he basically said that anyone should be able to open a shop that uses and can sell content from the Steam platform. And so in 2005, my first blog and podcast was called Gamer Andy, and we talked about video games. And I was never able to monetize that. We had 10,000 or so listeners over the course of three years, but it was very, very difficult to monetize it. But if Valve had been offering this, then what we would have done on that site is it would have just been a Steam page, a uh, Steam store. And we would have published all the same content, except then whenever someone wanted to buy something that we had chosen to feature, we would have made money from it. So doesn't that solve the problem? No, I, I, I like what you said very early on, especially well, which was the uh, if by allowing people to solve that, you know, which which ones to go visit uh, and profit by it, uh, then you sort of solve it. And, and, and I would even say it, you know, if your virtual ma- reviewers had virtual magazines where you could also place virtual ads, because as much as people hate advertising, you know, there's an old adage that without advertising, something happens. Uh, and that is nothing. Something terrible happens, and that is nothing, um, which is still true because you you still need and you often can still win. Even if the reviewer doesn't like what you want, sometimes the reviewer is wrong. And if you want to put up your own money to be able to scream into the channel that the reviewer controls by putting an ad with through the you know on the reviewer's site and prove the reviewer wrong, then you should have that opportunity. So you just need to make sure that what you know. And, and by the way, I think that those will self-solve. Uh, with what you framed there originally, which is that make sure that the people who can help you sort the good from the chaff also can do it profitably. And once you do, then uh, it, you know, it'll work itself out. Sir Richard Garriott, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, Adam. Really a, a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, a very enjoyable talk about uh, the current and exciting future we have ahead of us. If anybody's interested in the things that we were talking about, go to www.shroudoftheavatar.com and get involved. 
Thanks for listening to episode 86 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Virtual World's Real Money with Richard Garriott was produced by Adam B. Levine, edited by Denise Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Questions or comments? Email Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one. Let's Talk Bitcoin is transforming into the LTB network over the next few months. And as part of that transition, we're adding many new shows that cover the world of cryptocurrency from a different perspective or a very specific part of this growing and vibrant community. From Paul Boyer's Mad Money Machine to Bitcoins and Gravy to the Sex and Science Hour, you'll get them all on the same LTB podcast feed as always without changing a thing. That said, we've expanded from two hours per week to six hours per week, and next month it'll be even more. You can now subscribe to just your favorites at letstalkbitcoin.com. Click the Shows button for all full subscription options. And of course, please rate the shows. However you listen, whether on Stitcher, iTunes, or somewhere else entirely, your reviews help others find our show. Thanks for listening.